Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Diffusion. Yes, it is that time of year again. So on Diffusion today, we promise a half hour away from frantic Christmas shopping and the unending debate over ham, turkey or both. So sit back and relax with three wise chemists who bring gifts of news, science and laughter. My name's Jackie Hayes. Today we have the festive Patrick Ruby looking into the science behind everyone's favourite indoor tree. Plus, Ravia Khan explores a fishy resurrection. And then we'll cram in anything else that we can into the show. But before we get to all of that, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. Does your mind really speed up during emergencies? David Eagleman of Baylor College of Medicine in Texas has been scaring people to find out. It turns out that roller coasters aren't scary enough to slow down time. Instead, they dropped volunteers from great heights backwards with no ropes. They fell at over 100 kilometres an hour for three seconds. People falling had to watch a display screen on their wrist that was flicking through numbers. The display was set to flick through the numbers at a rate that was adjusted to be too fast for the people to see when they were standing still. The idea was to see if the volunteers' perception speeded up when they were scared so they could read the numbers on the display. Did their minds speed up and time slow down? No. The subjects all remember falling for longer than they actually did, but they weren't able to read the numbers on the display. Their perception of time wasn't really speeded up. They just remembered it that way. The time slowdown is an illusion caused by memory. When you're frightened, the amygdala in your brain lays down an extra set of memories in parallel with your normal memory of events. This means that when you recall what happened, you remember a richer, more detailed experience than you normally would. Because you have more memories, you wrongly estimate that the experience took longer. This may be why bad experiences seem to take longer, while time flies when you're having fun. There's no such thing as a fair coin. In the paper Dynamical Bias in the Coin Toss, researchers analyse what happens when you toss a coin, and it's not as simple as you thought. They found that even when flipped enthusiastically, coins come up more often the same way that they start. If it starts with heads up, then it's more likely to land with heads up. Magicians have known this for ages. The bias for a fair coin is small, just 51 to 49, instead of the 50-50 you'd expect. It would take 250,000 trials to check this, but it turns out to be true. If a coin were thrown straight up so that spun around its edge instead of its length, then naturally the head would just spin around and the coin would still land with the same face up. It would be 100% unfair. Now, If instead the coin was thrown to spin over its length as it's supposed to be, then it would tend to be fair, coming up 50% heads and 50% tails. But any angle between perfectly lengthwise and perfectly edgewise is somewhat unfair. This gets more complicated when you put in gyroscopic effects from all the spinning. 
When you average it all out, you tend to get the coin landing with the same side up that it started with. Experiments confirm this. Of course, if you can't see which way up the coin starts before you toss it, then the coin toss becomes completely fair again. Mice that don't fear cats. Genetic engineers have been having fun developing all sorts of mighty mice, from the super strong to the long-lived, as they seek to understand which genes do what. Now they've managed to disconnect the fear that mice have always felt when they're near cats. Biologists knew that this fear could be turned off, because the parasite Toxoplasmosis gondii manipulates the brains of mice just like this. Instead of a chemical manipulation, they bred mice without the nasal cells that detect the cat's scent. These mice are actually happy to go and play with the cat, unaware that cats don't always play nice. But this was cheating, because the mice might survive and learn. So another team knocked out a gene called Staphmin that controls the experiences of both learned and instinctive fear in the amygdala of the brains of mammals. These mice don't learn to be afraid from scary experiences, and they don't have an instinctive fear of predators. The researchers speculate that since this fear is genetically determined, there might be other emotional reactions that we're born with, and don't simply learn in childhood. The hope is that these studies may lead to therapies for people suffering from anxiety disorders. Whether the military wants soldiers that can't even learn to be afraid is another matter. It's that time of year again, where some of us hang up colourful stockings and hope for some pleasant surprises, or string up some mistletoe and entice our loved ones to take a stroll beneath. Whether you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Taoist, Wicca, agnostic, or just atheist, Christmas is a time when you'll be exposed to tradition, celebration, and a lot of product marketing. The Christmas tree is a symbol of all three of these, but is our need for a greener world changing our view of the humble Christmas tree? Patrick Ruby investigates and also sees what you think. It's something a lot of us have been anticipating for months. Each time we see a nativity scene set out in front of a local church, each time we see a jolly fat man in a red suit and white beard on TV, spot a red-nosed reindeer, or walk past a brightly decorated triangular-shaped tree, we are reminded of it. It's Christmas. Christmas can be a time of ritual, tradition, and a lot of shopping. One of the favourite traditions is the Christmas tree. I asked some Sydney ciders about what they did with their Christmas trees. Do you and your family celebrate Christmas with a Christmas tree? Yes, we do. We usually have an arrangement of bulby things, a whole bunch of white David Jonesy style things, goldy stuff. And we usually have like a hang up kind of like a couple of like witchy dolls and wizards and fairies and stuff like that that are also hung on there. I, I guess we put the, the typical stuff on, the baubles, the ribbons, the tinsel. Uh, and they, in my mum's case, it's very classy tinsel. Probably wouldn't even call it tinsel. Um, lights. Uh, my brother and I try and sneak on odd things every now and again, but it always, it always gets taken off. Christmas trees have a long history. Germanic tribes in pre-Christian times celebrated patron trees, such as Thor's oak, as sacred symbols and objects. As Christianity spread and merged with pagan cultural practices, the triangular trees of pagan ritual came to represent the trinity of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. In Renaissance times, the trees became more closely associated with Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. 
he was said to have decorated a small tree in his house to symbolise the stars. Decorated Christmas trees were erected in cathedrals and communal public areas. The tradition flourished in Germany, especially among the nobility, but also spread out over the world with German settlers. In the 19th century, the English Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, also from Germany, is one of those credited with making the family Christmas tree popular with the general public. As royal celebrities, their Christmas celebrations were reported throughout the British Empire and America. And now, over 150 years later, the Christmas tree has become a permanent fixture in many homes. So what has this got to do with science? Well, the type of Christmas tree we use raises a scientific dilemma. Do we go natural or plastic? The most popular natural Christmas trees are evergreen firs and pines. The biggest consumer of Christmas trees is Europe. In Europe, about 50 million trees per year are sold. Germany produces the lion's share of these, about 19 million trees annually. In the US, 35 million trees are grown each year and sold, mainly direct from tree-growing farms. In Australia, there is also a small industry in Christmas trees, with the species Pinus radiata as one of our favourites. But in Australia, the climate is drier, and the growing season is different. This year in Australia has been difficult for many farmers because of the drought. About 25% of farming families are being subsidised by the government, and Christmas trees growers are suffering along with the main agricultural industries. We have our own native Christmas tree in Australia, Nutsia floribunda. It comes from the mistletoe family and grows natively in Western Australia. Noitsia typically flowers throughout December, after many other natives have stopped. It produces bright yellow and orange flowers that look a lot like Christmas candles or light. It also requires very little water. Could it be the answer for Australia's Christmas future? Well, not at the moment it seems. Noitsia has proven very difficult to cultivate commercially. One reason for this is that it is a parasite and needs to be coupled with a host plant, such as a native grass, to survive. Its roots extract water and minerals from its host. So no host, no Christmas tree. In Australia and many other countries, there is also the plastic option. Plastic trees have become more popular. They have evolved from their toilet brush style image to become quite lifelike. Sometimes they look even more real than the real thing. Most plastic trees are manufactured in China and exported to the rest of the world. I went back to the streets of Sydney to see what type of tree was the favourite. Where do you get your tree from? Uh, we usually hunt around in the bush somewhere. We'll jump in the car and we'll try and find a big old uh, bizarre looking branch which we usually cut in through the front door and then spray paint it either white or silver. Have you ever thought about having an Australian native tree as a tree for Christmas? No, not so much of a fan. Probably the European influence that I, I identify probably the Christmas tree more with something, you know, just in terms of the tradition of it. Um, there's something nicer about not maybe not Australian bush. It just doesn't feel like Christmas if it's like a, a wattle or something. But you definitely prefer a, a sort of a living tree. Yes, that would be nice. But I don't really believe in the idea of chopping down a tree for, you know, sticking in the living room and then watching it die. I like the idea of a tree in a pot because, you know, the symbolism of something still being alive is, you know, it's nice. Yep. Where do you usually get your trees from? Uh, well, the garage. <laughs> <laughs> We've had the same tree for a couple of years now, so we just 
box it up every Christmas and take it out every Christmas after. We used to have a potted Christmas tree, but it grew old and shabby. My mother got sick of it, so she got a plastic tree. Would you ever consider going back and having a living tree again? Um, I would, personally. Um, I'd actually like to uh, decorate a tree in my own backyard um, rather than even taking it into my living room. I think that that would be a fun idea. So what are the pros of a plastic tree? They're often cheaper than real trees. The average plastic tree might last six years, so that's six years worth of real trees you don't have to buy. They're easier to put up and take apart once you get the hang of it. And of course, you don't have to water them. But what about the cons? Environmentally speaking, real trees are a better buy. Plastic trees are usually made from PVC, and manufacturing them releases a lot of carbon dioxide and carcinogens, such as dioxin, into the atmosphere. Real trees are carbon neutral. They take in roughly the same amount of carbon as is given off when they decay. Transporting plastic trees internationally also leaves a big carbon footprint. Locally grown real trees don't need to be transported as far, and so less CO2 is produced in carting them around. After the six years are up, plastic trees don't biodegrade easily. They stay around for years. Real trees can be ground into mulch and then reused in the garden. Plastic trees often contain lead-based compounds to make them more malleable. Lead can get on your fingers if you touch the tree and into your body, where it can cause liver, kidney and neurological damage in large enough amounts. And unfortunately, vacuuming up the dust created by these trees can make it worse by helping it to spread around. So the natural trees might have won on this front. Yet there could be another option to avoid those nasty pine needles, chemicals, and lugging a dead tree around. This is decorating a potted tree. It's already being practiced by Australian families, and in some cases has been for a while. Like a plastic tree, you can use it over and over again, and it would be cheaper in the long term. Like a real tree, it would be carbon friendly. You could bring a potted plant onto the balcony or into the house once a year to decorate and put the presents next to. Once it outgrows its pot, you could plant it in your backyard, where it would continue to hold back the CO2. And your own potted tree can be watered by hand, a saving on water for a drier country. So there's the science of an eco-friendly Christmas tree. Whatever you decide this year, have a happy holiday. Thanks, Patrick. Natural or plastic trees, and our own homegrown Aussie parasites, what do you think? This is The Octopus's Garden by The Beatles. I'd like to be under the sea In an octopus's garden in the shade He'd let us in, knows where we've been In his octopus's garden in the shade And now we have Rabia Khan talking about the best Christmas present science and fish lovers ever received. Fishy Christmas fossils. It was just before Christmas, 69 years ago, in a small port town in South Africa, where the discovery of a large blue fish caused a sensation in the scientific world and was heralded the best fish story in 60 million years. Why? Because this fish was thought to be extinct for more than 60 million years. It all began on December 23, 1938, 
Marjorie Courtney Latimer, the young curator of a tiny museum in East London, South Africa, went down to the docks to check the catch for any unusual specimens she might want for a museum. According to Marjorie, she noticed a blue fin protruding beneath a pile of rays and sharks on the ship's deck. Pushing the overlaying fish aside revealed, as she would later write, the most beautiful fish I've ever seen, five feet long and a pale mauve blue with iridescent silver markings. Marjorie had no idea what the fish was, but knew it must go back to the museum at once. She thought her specimen bore similarities to a prehistoric fish, particularly in the structure of the head and the trilobe shape of the tail. She mailed a crude sketch of the creature with a description to Professor J. L. B. Smith, a chemistry teacher with a passion for fish. However, he was away for Christmas holidays. It was not till January third, nineteen thirty-nine. Marjorie heard back from Smith in now famous cable: "Most important, preserved skeleton and gills." Equals fish described. Full stop. However, in an attempt to preserve the fish by mounting it, the innards had been discarded. A search for them in the museum and town trash bins proved fruitless. Smith did not arrive at the East London Museum until February the sixteenth. He identified the fish immediately as a silicant and named it Latimeria chelumni. The fish would soon be called the most important zoological find of the century. A living dinosaur, it was said, would be no more amazing than this incredible discovery. After a local newspaper reporter was allowed to take a single photo of the mounted silicon, the picture soon appeared all around the world. Smith, Latimer, and the silicon became overnight celebrities. When a public viewing for one day only was arranged, twenty thousand visitors are said to have shown up. Smith became obsessed with finding a second intact specimen, including innards. However, decade went by with no response to reward notices he posted on the African coast. Captain Eric Hunt, who attended one of Smith's lectures in Zanzibar, became fascinated by the silicant. He offered to post Smith's reward notices in the Comoros Islands, a group of small islands in the Mozambique Channel, where he worked. Another Christmas, fourteen years later, on twenty-first December, nineteen fifty-two, Captain Hunt was approached by two Comorans carrying a hefty bundle. One, Ahmed Abdullah, caught a fish that was the same fish pictured on the reward notices Hunt had posted. He cabled Smith immediately in South Africa and awaited his response. Smith then negotiated with Prime Minister Mellon of South Africa for a plane to fly him all the way to the Comoros. Mullen, out of the capital on yet another Christmas holiday, consented. When Smith saw the dead fish on arrival in the Comoros, he wept. It was indeed a silicon. He now had his second specimen, organs intact. Forty-six years after the discovery of silicons in the Comoros Islands, a new population has been identified in North Sulawesi, Indonesia. Dr. Mark Edman was on a honeymoon trip to the area in September '97 when his wife Anes spotted a strange fish being wheeled into the fish market. They recognized the fish as a silicant and snapped a picture of it before it was sold. A year later, a second specimen was brought live to Dr. Edman. This second specimen confirmed the find and led to the subsequent identification of a new species of silicant, Latimeria menadensis. The silicon dates back 410 million years, one of the incredible 
aspects of the living silicate Latimeria is that it offers a genetic and anatomical snapshot of life in those times. The living silicates, Latimeria chalumni and Latimeria minodosis, are possibly the sole remaining representatives of a once widespread family of silicate fishes. The silicate appears to be a cousin of Eustonopteron, a fish once credited with growing legs and coming ashore 360 million years ago. Today, scientists prefer to cite the tongue-twisting fossil candidates, Ichthyostega pandaraptis, Acanthotega, and the newly discovered Tiktaalik rose as the ancestors of all tetrapods, amphibians, reptiles, mammals. Even ourselves. Well, it's just before Christmas again, and maybe another silicon discovery might be lurking in the waters closer to home. For more information on this amazing creature, the silicon, check out www.dinofish.com. You just heard the best fish story for 60 million years, and that website was www.dinofish.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. If you'd like to know more about the stories we have on, or just want to contact us, our email address is diffusion at two ser dot com. That's diffusion at two ser dot com. And we're currently being brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now it's time for the news that didn't quite make the news. And today we have a couple of stories for you, still about the festive season, Christmas. For starters, it's the season for conception, and I know this because I'm actually born nine months after Christmas in at the end of September, and this is a very common birthday apparently. But、uh, for all of you women out there getting pregnant or men impregnating women, we have some interesting science news for you.、Uh, Ian, have you got some of the details over there? Yes, for all our pregnant listeners who feel they can't stand to be pregnant, it turns out you've evolved. To be able to stand while you're pregnant, really, women have different back bones, different vertebra to men. Hmm. And what does the what does it do? So they can so they can balance so they can balance while they're standing up. So they have wedge-shaped vertebra in the lower back, and the interlocking bony projections that align each vertebra with its neighbours are larger than they are in men. And it's been that way for about two to three million years, and we've only just noticed. <laughs> We've only just noticed 2007. We've、yes. known anatomy for quite a while. That's a bit surprising. But we didn't notice that women have different backbones to men. So okay, so when you see a lot of pregnant women, they're often holding onto their lower back and leaning backwards. And men Is, can't do the same. So men don't have the flexibility to do that. Is that the idea? Exactly. Ah, so if you're pregnant, you get very very heavy in the front. Yes, is that right? And if you can't do this, you fall over. Exactly, you just fall <laughs> over, which was not a good look. I mean, imagine. Well, you can see this in action with men with beer bellies. When they get big, a lot of beer, what happens? They fall flat on their face. <laughs> so poor men out there—they probably have bellies just as big as women, but they can't do this bending back and putting pressure on the lower spine. That's right. They're just not. They haven't evolved for it. You said we've had this for two or three million years. Is that right? Yes. What about other、um, primates?、Do、well, that's how they know it's been that long.、Um, oh, right. They found an Australopithecine fossil from two to three million years ago. Australopithecine woman who has the same wedge-shaped vertebra and large interlocking bones in the spine. 
So she would have carried her baby the same way, leaning back. And if her mate tried to hold the baby, he might have fallen on his face. <laughs> so when women complain about back pain, is that is that related to this? or I don't know. I think it's still a lot of weight to carry for a lot of time, and it's really uncomfortable. So they think that uh, our australopithecine ancestors may have been just as uncomfortable in pregnancy well, as women are. As women are, right. Well, I guess while we're discussing weight and how we carry it around, there's another story that didn't quite make the news as well. And uh, it's got to do with diet. Apparently, around, uh, dietary factors are thought to contribute to around 35% of cancers. That's a lot. Which is, it is, it's huge. And this study looked at nearly half a million people aged between 50 and 71, and they did it in the US, they looked at the correlation between red meat and cancer. And apparently there's no doubts now, the more red meat you eat, the more likely you are to get cancer from it. The Christmas barbecue. (laughs) Well, I wonder how much that's a factor, because you often cook red meat, like your sausages or your lamb or your, your beef steak, on the barbecue, and that's got carcinogens. Well, isn't that actually the worst way to cook it if you don't want to develop cancer? I, I believe th- how you cook it affects whether or not you get cancer. There is that, but I, I also heard a, um, that the way you store meat is quite bad as well. So in Asia, if you smoke the meat, that can often have a lot of carcinogens, but perhaps for the same reason. Perhaps for the same reason, yeah. Yeah. They say here that red meat actually contains certain carcinogens, so a whole bunch of hydrocarbons and other chemicals that I've never heard of before, but apparently they cause cancer. <laughs> but um, but it tastes so good. I know. The the what they say to avoid here is beef, pork, or lamb. So maybe turkey for Christmas or goat. Fish has been found to lower colorectal cancers. Have some barbecue coelacanth. Sadly, that's all from us in this festive edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild passionate praise, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast on the website www.diffusionradio.com. Go to www.diffusionradio.com and subscribe to our podcast. Contributing to the program this week was Ian Wolfe, Patrick Ruby and Rabia Khan. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. It's broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jackie Hayes. Have a sciencey, sciencey Christmas and join us inside your audio device of choice next week on Diffusion Science Radio. about the coral that lies beneath the waves oh what joy for every girl and boy knowing they're happy and they're safe we would be so happy you and me no one there to tell us what to do I'd like to be See, in an octopus's 
Just got with you. 